Is grid bank considered transmission or is it considered generation? Or both. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, the real answer is it can look like either and it depends on the certain circumstance. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about energy storage, specifically utility-scale lithium-ion battery technology. And if you want to skip the monologue and go straight to the interview, that begins at 2.45. I love talking about ways to take the drawbacks of energy technologies off the table. And the company we are profiling today has part of that solution. In last week's geothermal episode, we discussed the challenge most renewable energy sources have, which is that they are intermittent. The wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. So these energy sources are unreliable and have to be backed up with conventional energy technology. That usually means something using fossil fuels. Renewable proponents have always held out hope for energy storage technologies. I'd get earfuls of it years ago when I was working for the coal industry and the conference organizer would situate all the energy representatives on a dais, usually starting with me, and work their way down to renewable and energy efficiency guys. I have always said it was like we were in a western and they were arranging us black hats to progressively whiter hats. At the time, battery technology prices were insane, and so the energy storage solution was about as far away as carbon capture technology was for my group. But the last 10 years has been an amazing time for energy technologies, and as we've explored, hardly any conventional wisdom still holds that held 10 years ago. Even the notion that lithium-ion batteries are dangerous is an out-of-date notion. The company we're meeting today has licked that issue with a proprietary electrolyte that makes their batteries one of the safest pieces of kit you'll find in the field. The only drawback with lithium-ion battery technology now is that it's gotten insanely popular. And while the price of the technology has dropped, the commodity price of lithium has soared. You can blame everything from your smartphone to your neighbor's new Tesla for that. In the past 15 years, it has more than quadrupled. And in the past year alone, the price of lithium has increased by nearly 20%. Can Moore's Law help offset the price? We'll find out. Our guest today is Jeff Gates, Vice President of Business Development for Alevo Energy, an energy storage company based here in the Charlotte area. It prides itself as the world's first utility-grade battery, the holy grail for renewable energy supporters. Jeff spent the previous eight years at Duke Energy, where he developed several initiatives for that company. In fact, you'll hear a pretty interesting callback to an issue our first episode's guest brought up regarding storage technology, so be sure to listen for that. Alevo entered the energy storage business in 2014, so you can understand why I was confused when I arrived at their offices and found myself inside a building that must have been hundreds of thousands of square feet. Be sure to check out that story after the interview. I won't spoil the surprises, but this little tune plays a part of it. That's coming up, but first I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff Gates. 
We're here talking to Jeff Gates, Vice President of Global Sales here with Levo. Jeff, I'd like to just keep this wide open at the very beginning. Tell us what Levo does. We are an energy service provider, and what that really means is that we are a vertically integrated manufacturer of energy storage systems, and we do everything from manufacture cells all the way up through build complete integrated energy storage systems, and then we can go and deploy those on the grid, either through third-party sales or acting as an energy service provider where we will actually own the equipment and provide the energy storage as a service to the end customer. This is lithium ion technology, similar to what we find under the hood of a Prius, a Tesla. Seems like that's really the go-to technology these days when it comes to heavy duty battery technology, wouldn't you say? I think it is right now the market standard. I think if you look at most of the megawatts that have gone in over the past couple of years, that they've been dominated by lithium ion. We are technically a lithium iron phosphate battery, but with a twist. So our key differentiator is our inorganic electrolyte. Right. And the inorganic electrolyte does a couple of nice things. One is really the focus on safety. It is non-flammable and the other is incredibly robust life. So we have stopped cycling when we passed 55,000 100% depth of discharge cycles, which is basically an order of magnitude greater than a typical lithium ion cell is going to have. You talk about this electrolyte, I believe you call it Alevolite. Yes. Tell me and your competitors more about that, Jeff. That was your special sauce. That was what differentiates you from other battery providers in this industry, correct? Yes. I think when the lithium ion battery was first commercialized back in the 90s, it had been invented in the 80s and they tended to catch fire or have thermal runaway events with more regularity than people liked and didn't consider them to be safe to put in consumers' hands. Sony really revolutionized the industry by putting a chip on the battery and basically controlled the rate of charge and discharge and the state of charge. So you couldn't overcharge the battery by leaving it plugged in too long. You couldn't let it go below 20% state of charge so you wouldn't cause any damage to the cell by going too low in the state of charge. And that's what revolutionized the camcorder and then all the way up through the laptop and every other device that you carry in your pocket, the cell phone, everything else. Because lithium has tremendous advantages in terms of its energy density and the ability to cycle relatively frequently compared to previous technologies. The inherent problem with the lithium ion battery space isn't that it's got lithium in it. The lithium is just the spark, okay? That's the match. The real issue is that it's sitting in its own fuel. So the way the lithium ion battery works is you have to dissolve that lithium ion in a solvent to make the electrolyte. That's what makes it flow through the battery. And that electrolyte in a conventional cell is some hydrocarbon string. Just like ethane, methane, butane, gasoline, every other hydrocarbon string that you can think of, when they start to burn, they continue to burn. So our researchers said, if you want to have a safe battery, you have to take that fuel out. So we developed an inorganic electrolyte. The inorganic electrolyte has no chemical energy in it. It simply cannot oxidize. It's fully oxidized. It just can't burn. The problem is if the match tries to start, it's extinguished immediately because it's in a fire suppression agent, essentially. And that's um, important to bring up. This is something that you hear a lot about in the news that maybe might be unfair for lithium ion technologies is these cases where they have at times exploded. It sounds to me like you have solved that issue with the electrolyte, and especially it looks like a lot of your grid banks are situated at a substation, right? Yeah. And all the components of the substation require explosion-proof everything. So that's how you're able to say, look, we are just as safe as everything else at that substation. Am I right? Yeah, I would say we're safe as any other equipment in the substation. And I think that there's an interesting point that comes up in some of the debates of what does safe mean? And no matter what battery technology you have or electric equipment is on the grid, there is a potential for somebody getting electrocuted. That's the nature of electricity. What the Lavalite does is it takes two what are relatively equivalent technologies in terms of a battery storage technology that have the risk 
of electrocution and maybe other risks, and it completely removes one of those risk factors. So you've now taken the flammability risk and the explosion risk out of the equation with the Alevo technology versus the conventional technology. That's why we've developed a commercial and industrial product that was not our main focus originally, but there has been so much consumer demand for, hey, I don't need a two megawatt system, but I want to put this in my building, and I'm very worried about putting a conventional technology there. Do you guys offer something smaller? And so we've developed a 50 kilowatt hour and a 35 kilowatt hour unit that are designed for behind the meter use in buildings where people are not comfortable with the potential fire risk of a conventional lithium battery. When I was at Duke Energy a couple weeks ago, we went and toured the Duke Renewable Energy Center. That was our first episode that I did on this podcast. And one of the things that they talked about was in Texas, they had used another energy battery technology that wasn't quite as good as lithium ion. And they switched over to lithium ion. They weren't using a Levo at the time, but I believe someone involved with that project has made it over this way. You're familiar with that one, right? I am. And uh, tell us a little bit about that and what was different about that technology. Yeah, so the project that they were referring to is the No Trees Project down in Texas. In my previous life at Duke Energy, I was the developer of that project. Oh, you're the guy. So, I'm the guy. You're the guy, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Small so, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so part of the issue there was when we did that project down in Texas, storage really hadn't been contemplated in Texas yet. What we anticipated the battery to be doing in the market was very different than what it ended up doing because the rules were being written as the project was being developed and the rules that they put in place were not well suited to the original technology when there was an advanced lead acid battery. It has two disadvantages. One was sitting at partial state of charge. It didn't particularly like and then high power rates. So being able to put out a lot of power in short bursts is not what lead acid is generally suited to and doing that numbers of times. So they did put new lithium ion technology in there. Because of that, I would say that part of the problem with the Notrix project was that the technology that was selected was selected to do a different duty cycle than what it ended up doing. And I can certainly sympathize with that. I've brought in different technologies for the oil field and they were not intended for that and we re-engineered for those situations. So I can certainly understand where you kind of go with what you know and then you're able to improve upon that in the next iteration, right? Yeah. Jeff, this is a kind of technology that can be used in a lot of different places. One of the things that I always ask is, what is your 80-20 for Alevo? Where is most of the business development happening with your technology? Primarily anything that's a high cycling application because that's our key competitive advantage. So once again, a typical cell is somewhere in the 5,000 cycle range, maybe 3,000 to 5,000, and we're 50,000. If you want to cycle once a day, if you want to turn daytime sun into nighttime sun as a PV plant and just capture that excess energy, in 10 years, you get 3,600 cycles approximately. You don't get an advantage if you're doing a one cycle a day. You can't take advantage of our key strength. The applications that we look at are frequency regulation, solar smoothing, spinning reserves, peak shaving for industrial loads that have you know, potentially very large loads that are intermittent. So it could be a smelter or a steel mill that has a big blast of power for a short period of time and then the load comes down. Let's talk about the peak shaving you just mentioned. I was in an NRG peaker plant for work last week. One of the issues about renewables that we always hear about is that every megawatt of renewable energy needs to have a gas plant or some other form of conventional generation behind it. Would battery technology help eliminate this? Is this what you mean by peak shaving? Basically able to take care of some of the work that some of these peaker plants are doing? Yeah, I think that if you look at last year in Southern California, essentially they built a synthetic peaker plant for 
lack of a better term, using energy storage. Southern California, they had a problem with a leak in one of the natural gas storage facilities. They needed capacity to get through the summer, and so they built several hundred megawatts of battery storage, four-hour duration, to in fact look and do exactly the same duty as a gas peaker plant. The advantage of using battery storage to do that is it can look just like that CT, but the CT generally has a very low capacity factor. It only runs 10% of the hours in a year or less. The other 90% of the time, it's just not cost effective to incur the startup costs for running that. Battery storage has very low marginal cost. So once it's built, I can run it all day, every day and get much higher capacity factor and much higher usage. So it really is the peaker plant in one of its duty cycles and then it has a whole host of other services it can provide. So it's a much more useful tool for the grid. Sounds to me like there's a little bit less overhead, not as many bodies monitoring things. Would I be correct in assuming that? I would say in general, yes, they're pretty much, we have a site in PGM right now that's unmanned. So we monitor it remotely, dispatch it, monitor, do everything. There's no manned people there full-time, only when you go in and do maintenance. For the most part, batteries are very low maintenance machines. They don't have the same number of moving parts as a rotating generator. I spoke to a gentleman here in Charlotte who recently retired from the solar industry. He said that the power that renewables produce can put out a somewhat irregular wave. Is that what frequency regulation means, smoothing that out? I would say it's related. When you have a solar plant and you have cloud cover that comes over, that sort of very rapid change in the output of the solar facility, you can manage very well with storage because that can cause issues out on the distribution grid for the utilities. Just because the grid wasn't designed for that two-way power flow and those rapid changes necessarily in the direction of power flow. And so storage can provide good power quality. Part of that is on voltage regulation and part of it is on frequency regulation. But the frequency regulation piece comes about even without any solar on the grid. People have been doing regulation on the grid just because load doesn't always match supply. And whenever you have a little bit more supply than you have load, the frequency starts to creep up above that 60 hertz number. So the grid operator wants less power to be put on the grid and bring that back down to the 60 hertz level. Ben Lowe, who is your policy and market development guy, I met him at an E4 Carolinas event about a month ago. One of the things we talked about is the difference it makes on how quickly your technology can release electricity to the grid. I think a lot of people think that battery technology is just releasing megawatt hours at a time. Kind of explain the difference there about um, how fast you can release power out of these. Yeah, there's two questions there. One is what's the speed and accuracy of a storage resource versus a conventional power plant? I would say the way I would think about it is when you do get those changes in frequency on the grid and you send a signal to a conventional power plant, it may take 10 minutes to ramp to its new set point. A battery can be at its full new set point in less than a second. Very easy to control, and again, in the analogy world, it's like the speedboat in the harbor. It's great for changing direction very quickly. It's not really great necessarily for shipping 100 shipping containers from the other side of the world to the harbor. That's where you have combined cycle power plants. They're good at providing energy. They're not good at changing directions necessarily. Storage, very good at changing direction, being very fast, very accurate, not necessarily great at being the vehicle to ship large amounts of energy across time. That's what combined cycle power plants are for. Your website showed a pictogram and it showed an arrow between the substations and the homes and everywhere the electricity is going both ways. And I assume what you're talking about is possibly distribution and storage as well. Explain how battery technology factors in with residential renewables. Are we at the point where people who have the solar cells on their houses can give back to the grid and does battery technology factor into 
to that? It does. I think that right now in most states, there's a net metering law when you have solar. So the grid is your battery. The grid was designed for power to flow from a central station power plant through a transmission line, through a big switch yard, then to a distribution feeder and out to the business or the home. Now that you have quite a bit of distributed generation that's producing power out in that distributed arena, it really helps solve a problem that the grid wasn't designed to do and it's been doing the same thing for 100 years, but it makes it much smarter, much more resilient, much more reliable. It, it sort of turns the grid into an unbreakable grid. We've talked a lot about your grid bank technology. That's the hardware, but you have a separate business line that is like a software equivalent. That's your Alevo Analytics line. Tell us a little bit about that. So Alevo Analytics does a number of different things. One of the key things that they do is look at what is the value of storage to the grid? Because that is one of the most difficult questions to answer for a utility. As I mentioned, I used to work at Duke Energy. We've done a number of pilot projects for energy storage, established that the technology worked. But when we went to try to go put it into the utility planning process and say, I want to use storage as one of my options to plan the grid, using the traditional utility planning models, it did not show up as the least cost solution, primarily because they weren't looking at granular enough data. Okay, you're looking at an annual load curve 10 years in the future, and that's not how the utility actually operates their grid. They're looking every five minutes in the future. If you plan the grid the way you operate the grid, storage makes a lot of sense. If you just try to put storage into a planning model, it often doesn't make a lot of sense. So Alevo Analytics was really created to build very sophisticated models and answer the question, how much does it cost to operate my grid with storage, and how much does it cost to operate my grid without storage? And then if it's less with storage, how much less and does it cost less to install the storage than the savings I get from the grid? Um, Sounds to me like what it's doing is it's backing up your value proposition. Yeah, and the problem that you hear, and this is across the utility space, is that within the vertically integrated utilities, which is the traditional 100-year-old utilities, they don't have a price for all these separate services. So you have a price for the ancillary service, the regulation, you have spinning reserves, you have non-spinning reserves, then you have the ability to potentially do substation deferral or optimize your transmission grid. Well, all of those benefits accrue to the owner of the utility because they control the whole value chain from the generation of the electron all the way through the consumption or delivery to the consumer. In the deregulated markets, you have the opposite problem, whereas where you have a price on all of those different things, but those benefits can accrue to different participants in the value chain. The generator is not allowed to own the wires company. <laughs> so I may get optimization and I have a price for providing regulation, but I can also at the same time potentially get benefits for a substation deferral or transmission optimization, but it's very difficult to capture those two things with the same party. Now FERC has put together a notice of proposed rulemaking that says there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to do both of those things. You should be able to get some rate-based cost recovery for the benefit that it provides, the rate of recovery cost mechanism, and then you should also be able to get some market benefits, but that's gonna be working its way through the jurisdictional process, I think, over the next couple of years. That's an interesting point that you bring up. I started in Texas, ERCOT, deregulated market. I did a lot of work with TXU when they were going through their buyout. And and this is an interesting idea, this deregulation where the generation, the transmission, the retail is all separate. Is grid bank considered transmission or is it considered generation? Or both. <laughs> what is it, it? Yeah, the real answer is it can look like either and it depends on the certain circumstance. You know, think about Texas in particular. So the No Trees Battery Project that we put in, the PUC in Texas said, if storage wants to be treated as a generator, it has the same rights 
versus every other generator. So in that case, it's providing services to the ERCOT market, generation market-based services, and so it's treated as a generator. There's another project in Texas that was put in near a town called Presidio, and it's really to provide reliability benefits to that town, and it was cheaper than building a second transmission line to the town. They were allowed to build that and get cost recovery as a transmission asset, and transmission cost recovery in Texas is basically a socialized cost across all of the transmission users in the state of Texas. But there was a very clear line drawn in the sand when the commission said, yes, you can get cost recovery for this as a transmission asset, but thou shalt never send an electron into the marketplace and earn revenue as a market participant for that asset. It's a very bright line between being a generating asset or being a transmission asset, at least in Texas at the moment. Would you like to see more clarity from a regulatory standpoint on that? Yeah, I think that is going to start changing, I believe, and I think that's what the recent FERC ruling points out, is that there's really no reason that you shouldn't be able to get cost recovery under both of those models. You just have to be very clear about not having the regulated ratepayer subsidize the market returns when it's acting as a generating asset. As long as you can figure out mechanisms and there's ways to do that, that you're not cross-subsidizing from one to the other or double-dipping in your cost recovery mechanism, then you can actually take advantage of the full benefits that storage provides. And it will be, from a social optimum and a grid utilization efficiency standpoint, a much better outcome. Grid bank, your Alevo analytics, it seems like this all plays parts in the colloquial smart grid. Tell the uninitiated out there what that is and how Alevo fits in the smart grid. I think the smart grid is a fairly nebulous term. A lot of people use it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I scratch uh, my head on it a lot. Yeah, so. generically, I would say we've talked about the two-way power flows as you get distributed energy out there. If you look at the ability to put smart meters so that they can tell you not just over the course of a month, but instantaneously what your power usage is. You have communications, which you really haven't had in bulk on the, the utility side before. They have sensors that are out there that tell them instantaneously where did that power go out. They have the self-healing grid. If there is a problem on part of the network, you can open a switch there, reroute power around, and it's sort of like the highway lane closure. It automatically says, okay, all you people get off at this exit, go down this highway, and then get back on at the next exit, and you avoid the big traffic jam. So it's really a combination of equipment, software, analytics that deal with making the grid, the information that's available, and the control of energy flows on that grid more controllable, I'll say. And so I think storage is another piece in that puzzle. It's not just the smart meters and the communications infrastructure. It's the ability to say, okay, now I can sense that there's a voltage problem on a particular distribution feeder, and I can have a storage unit that's out there and have that dispatch power into the grid to help solve that voltage problem. Let's talk dollars and cents. This is a business and economic podcast, after all. This is from your website. I thought it was very interesting that you don't view this equipment in terms of price per kilowatt as, say, a renewable farm or a power plant. What's your reasoning for that perceived misconception? It's a somewhat misleading metric, even in the solar space. If I tell you I can sell you a solar panel that is one cent per kilowatt, but it only lasts for two days, that's a different value proposition than one that costs a dollar, but it lasts 20 years. Sure. So just saying what's the cheapest dollar per kilowatt cost is not necessarily the ideal metric, whether that's in the conventional solar space, the turbine space, or the storage space. The proper metric is what's the levelized cost of the energy that I get out of that asset on the grid. If you look on a levelized cost and you have 50,000 cycles or more available to the unit, then you can divide that capital cost over a much broader 
number of cycles, and so the levelized cost of storage is much less than a battery that you may have to replace every two years. It seemed to me like you were on the website trying to educate the bean counters out there on how to cost this in, and you advise them to consider the number of cycles like you were talking about, and the lack of downtime, correct? That needs to be accounted for as well, right? Yeah, I think that there's a number of things. If you're a purchaser of an energy storage system, once again, what's my total cost of owning and operating that system over the lifetime? In addition to just what's that upfront capital cost, what's the efficiency? I know if I put a kilowatt hour into an energy storage system, by the time it gets back out to the grid or to the end user, I'm getting less than a kilowatt hour out because it's not 100% efficient. The higher the efficiency is, the more I get back. If I get 90% of it back, much better than getting 70% of it back. So there's an education process that needs to go along with all of those different metrics. It's not necessarily a simple problem to solve. You have to have a little bit of thinking in terms of a long-term view, but once you have that, then that really gets you much closer than just saying, oh, well, this one is X dollars per kilowatt or X dollars per kilowatt hour on an installed basis up front, so that's the right choice. Let's talk about lithium. Lithium ion batteries are really hot right now, getting hotter with electric vehicles, your battery technology, so on and so forth. Is there any concern, Jeff, that lithium prices will get a little too carried away? Or do you think this battery technology has a sort of Moore's law where the technology gains are going to bring down the price and that'll offset the commodity costs of the lithium as it gets a little bit more expensive? Less than it becoming a huge problem going forward, I think what may happen is that some of the recent price declines that you see reported in the media of, hey, batteries have fallen in price by half over the past year, it's going to continue to do that. So in five years, they're going to be paying me to take them or they're going to be free. I think as you get the increase in some of those base commodity ingredients like lithium, that slowdown is going to happen. People keep pointing to the solar world as the analogy of look what's happened to solar costs over the past 10 or 15 years. 15 years ago, there was nobody manufacturing solar panels in bulk. There was no industry around that. They've been manufacturing lithium ion batteries at very large scale for 20 plus years. The expectation that batteries are going to continue to fall at 50% a year indefinitely, eventually the raw ingredient costs of lithium and the other chemicals are going to catch up with it. Are there other battery technologies that you're exploring beyond just lithium ion? In my research, I saw that there was a lithium sulfur technology. There's maybe a graphite solution in the future. Anything like that that you're looking at? We have an entire team in Germany that's dedicated to developing the next generation of cells. I think one important thing to remember is that our technology, we're just commercializing now. The first commercial units have shipped in 2017. So we're at the very beginning of our S-curve and the ability to take advantage and optimize this inorganic electrolyte. So we still have a huge room to grow in terms of developing this current generation of technology for us. That's not to say that we don't have really smart people looking at everything else that's out there because the really smart guys are the guys that figured out. The futurists, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they figured out how to take a lithium ion battery and make it safer. They've completely eliminated probably the single biggest risk factor in the lithium battery space by making it non-flammable. So now those same really smart guys are turning their attention to other problems as well. You guys were in the news probably about a month ago, your expansion, adding I think 200 jobs was the forecast. What are your plans? <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, yeah. yeah, part of that is a timing question. I think we are actively looking at expanding the factory now. It's not gonna happen next month. It's gonna happen over the next couple years, but the demand is definitely there. We're already reaching the point where we need to expand into that to meet the demand for the product globally, because it's not just the United States, there's a massive demand in the less developed parts of the world for 
new forms of electricity. A lot of places just don't have electricity, and I think it's going to be much like the telecommunications industry. You're not going to build out a landline phone business in any of these countries now. You're not going to go and build a central generation and transmission system. You're going to leap right to the cell phone era, in effect, of building microgrids with some combination of solar plus wind plus energy storage and use that in many of the areas of the world that just don't have access to electricity. This is what I call my lightning round where I ask what you think about all the other guys. So I'm going to go through all the energy sources. You just tell me what you think about them and where they fit in the mix. Natural gas. It's going to be the dominant generating source for the foreseeable future in the U.S. in terms of the number of kilowatt hours produced. And in general, we can't live without it at the moment. Crude oil. For electricity business, pretty much not a relevant factor in most parts of the world. I think where it is, diesel, that's probably the case where energy storage makes the most sense. Very, very easy to displace high-cost diesel. Nuclear. I don't think much new is going to get built. This is my own two cents. But I think that you're going to operate what's there throughout its licensing period. I think with the recent announcement around Westinghouse, I don't take that as a bullish sign for the nuclear industry. Cool. The economics are what's going to do coal in. I think that natural gas has just become the marginal fuel of choice. And that, combined with wind and solar, economics for coal are just going to be challenged. How about wind? And wind makes a lot of sense in certain areas where you have a good wind resource, but where the wind blows isn't where the people always are. Solar. And solar is going to be a increasingly dominant force of providing energy across the grid. Biofuels. Biofuels is a tough game. I think that it's got a lot of nice attributes but there haven't been really been anybody that's been able to make it scale very successfully. Fuel cells. It's always a technology that seems it's 10 years away. So maybe it's 10 years away. Hydroelectric. I think hydroelectric is a very nice resource. I think that in most countries, it's increasingly difficult to build large scale infrastructure where you're flooding massive, massive areas of land and displacing people to do that. But I think run of river and other hydro resources will continue to operate. Geothermal. Where the resource exists, it's a nice option. Electric vehicles. Very bullish on electric vehicles. I think that's going to become an increasingly bigger slice of the pie. Nuclear fusion. Don't know enough about it to comment. Okay. Jeff Gates, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was Jeff Gates, Vice President of Business Development for Alevo, an energy storage company based in the Charlotte area. Specifically, they are located in the old Philip Morris factory in Concord, where employees once churned out over a billion cigarettes a year. In 2009, the plant closed its doors and all but a dozen of its 2,500 employees found themselves out of work. Those that remained kept the place up. In 2014, Alevo moved onto the property and took over the 2.5 million square feet of factory space. Jeff took me on a private tour around the building, and it was one of the most impressive things I have ever seen in my life. Parquet floors stretching the length of soccer fields, room after room as big as factory floors, and for the movie buff, a little bit of trivia for you. Tribute. You remember that room in Hunger Games where Jennifer Lawrence and all of the other tributes trained for the big event? That sequence was filmed in one of the massive rooms at Alevo's world headquarters. You better believe I'll have some great pictures online for this episode. You can find them at Host Energy on Instagram and energy-cast.com. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. Special thanks again to Jeff and Christine Goodyear for taking time to set up this interview 
It was an incredible experience. That wraps up episode 12. Be sure to join us next week when we take a joyride in some electric vehicles. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. <laughs>